truly amazing love. You may be seated. If grace is not amazing to you, you don't understand it. Simple. Simple truth. I will say something else, too. I was privileged and blessed to hear another testimony this morning of... Uh, I'll preface it with this. If, you, if you're not used to worshiping in a Reformed church, it's going to be different for you. It's not going to be... Um, well, it's just going to be different for you. And, and, not, and I don't say this at every church. Not the entertainment model. It's not from the front. You're not being drowned out by, by um, a performance from the front. But encouraged to sing God's praise and to worship Him together and therefore to honor Him and encourage one another. There will be a difference when you start coming to a Reformed church. I would just encourage you to persevere. Because as you persevere, and these, these hymns and psalms and spiritual songs begin to take root in your heart, you see the difference that a God-centered, word-centered worship will make in your life. So don't ask yourself whether or not you enjoyed it. Ask yourself whether or not it's gospel-rich and biblical. And it, then maybe there's an adjustment period, but you, I promise you, if you stick with it, you will begin to enjoy it in a holy way of using that word, growing in grace. Okay, first sermon over. Turn to Romans chapter 6. <clears throat> we are in the middle of the book of Romans. We are uh, in chapter 6. We are studying through the book. Something else for you to know if you're new to Grace Church is that we, we work through books of the Bible We'll sometimes interrupt that. I mean, I did one recently that goes along with it called Complete in Him from Colossians. And during Easter and Christmas, you know, there's some other seasons when we'll take a short break. But normally, we're working through books of the Bible, and we're doing that uh, at present in the book of Romans. I've said this before. If you understand the book of Romans, you'll understand your Bible. You will understand the, uh, the gospel in depth. You will understand your Bible. You pair that up with Hebrews and you really begin to understand your Old Testament and your Bible together. But uh, this is one of the most important books you could ever study. This is one of the books that will ground you in salvation and help you see that, that there's a full-orbed salvation in Christ that is not just our entry point or our justification, but our sanctification and growth in grace and then our glorification as God finishes the work. So we're working through that. We've worked through... Um, and I'll give you some context in a minute. But uh, we're in chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 1 to 14. And then we're going to look at 13 to 14 and talk about living under grace. What does it mean to live under grace? To not live under law, but to live under grace. What does that kind of life look like? Well, Paul is answering that in this entire section that we've studied. But we'll be in 13 and 14 this morning. But this is God's Word. Let's start in verse 1 of chapter 6. In response to our justification by faith alone and grace abounding where sin increased, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Does the gospel produce a, a flippant attitude towards sin? Look what he says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who are, have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also, those of you who are believing in Him, you must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
And do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Thus far God's word. Let's pray together. Lord, help us. Have mercy upon us. Guide us, lead us, bless us. Help us to love you, to love one another, to follow you, Lord Jesus, to love your word and live in its light, to have an appetite for it and a, to be willing to dig and grow in it in the spirit applying it to us. So bless us this morning. Bless me to preach your word in the power of the Spirit. Bless us to hear it in the power of the Spirit. And then you, by your Spirit, take your word and do the surgery in our hearts that only you can do. Work in us for your glory and our good. Work in us to enjoy glorifying you, to grow in grace, to come to faith. Whatever you know each and every individual heart needs, Lord, we trust it to you and to your will. We ask for your blessing in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. I don't worry about sin very much because I'm not under law. I'm under grace. You hear that kind of thing, don't you? As though, as though being under grace kind of sort of gives a big blanket excuse to our sin as a Christian. Christians have often used verses like this to justify a lazy attitude when it comes to sin. To sort of pit living under grace against striving for holiness, if that makes sense. Sometimes we can get so justification-centered that we think any command to us then is legalism. And sort of we're not in the Bible very much if we're thinking that, but God graciously commands His children in the way that is both best for them and most in line with His glory. He loves us enough to warn us against the traps, against the pitfalls, against the things that are out there that will destroy our souls and to lead us in the paths of righteousness. When you read Psalm 23, He's our shepherd. And one of the things He's prayed for and one of the things that He does is He leads us in the path of righteousness. So as I said, today I want to talk about uh, what it really means to live under grace. And it's the opposite of the way I, that quote I started with. But a little bit of review. If you're new to us, this is your first time with us in Romans. This is going to be quick. But uh, the first, first uh, 15 verses is Paul's introduction to the Romans and his desire to be with them. 16 and 17 is his thesis statement for the whole book, which is the gospel. Right, And then he shows from verse 18 in chapter 1 to verse uh, 20 in chapter 3 that not only are all Gentiles lost and need a Savior, but all Jews are lost and need a Savior. So both universal need of a Savior. And then in 321 through the end of 5, we talked about justification by faith alone. That Savior is Christ. That salvation is a free gift to us in which we turn repentance and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we do all of that because He's at work in us. And He cleanses us from our sin. And He clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. And He declares us to be righteous on the basis of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, on the basis of Christ's righteous life. He declares us righteous. And then as we begin chapter 6, we're talking about now growth in grace. Having been forgiven for our sins, having been cleansed and clothed in His righteousness, having been adopted, now we're children of God. How then shall we live? And so he's begun that explanation in Romans chapter 6, giving us a theology of sanctification, helping us see our union with Christ and the difference that makes in our life in verses 1 through 11. He's still answering the question in verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then he says, by no means. And then he explains why he says, by no means. Our union with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. Culminating in verse 11, So you, believer, must consider yourselves dead to sin, dead to its reign. It no longer rules over you and alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
And then he starts in verse 12 to apply that theology of growth in grace or sanctification that he's given us in verses 1 through 11. And basically in our last sermon in Romans, we saw that our responsibility is, verse 12, to not let sin reign, therefore, in our mortal bodies. It, it no longer reigns, so don't let it reign, right? Don't let it deceive you and trick you and reign over you. I'll point you back to that sermon because I don't have time to review that much today. But just know that this, that verse 12 is part of this section, 12 to 14. We've seen our responsibility to not let sin reign not in our own strength and not in order to be accepted by God, but because we have been saved and, and, sang, and given His Spirit, because we are His children, because we're, the sin no longer reigns over us now, don't let it reign in your mortal body, in your flesh. And go back and listen to ver, uh, the sermon on verse 12 if you haven't heard it. And now we're going to pick up in verses 13 and 14 this morning. Since we're doing communion, I'm trying to keep it small. And you know what it means when a preacher says that. Nothing. But now we'll, we'll try to go through this in, in an efficient way. But the main point today, and this, to remember, living under grace means we make war on sin while we rest fully in Christ. We make war on sin while resting fully in Christ. That's what it means to live under grace. Not to be flippant about sin, but to make war on sin based on who He is and who we are in Him. We rest fully in Him, though, for our acceptance with God. We'll break that out a little bit, and I'll repeat that. But first, the first part of that, living under grace means fighting to put off sin and to put on righteousness. Look at verse 13. Now, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. So this is the put off side. Right? This is because you're in Christ. This is the first sort of negative command in the section. Since you are, verse 11, since you are a believer dead to sin and alive to God and have a responsibility not to let it reign in your life, verse 12, since all of that's true. Now, the NAS gets this a little better. Do not go on or do not keep on presenting your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. So when he words that used, there's a negative command here. It's a present command. So this is a continual vigilance uh, on, on, on our parts uh, that we're to be constantly not presenting ourselves and our bodies to sin to serve it. When he says present there, it says present. Think of presenting an offering. You're giving yourself to something. You're, you're presenting yourself as an offering to something. And since you're a believer now, that, that responsibility is to no longer be presenting yourself as an offering to sin. So he says in verse 13, Do not present your members to sin. Your faculties, your body. He'll say yourselves later in verse 13. Do not present what, you know, what we talked about last time, your mortal bodies. No longer be presenting them as servants or slaves to sin because you're not a slave anymore. See, this is not a, a, a command, do this so God will accept you. It's God has accepted you. You are in Christ. You are cleansed and forgiven and empowered. Therefore, sin no longer reigns over you. So now, don't present your members to sin and unrighteousness. And look what he says. You don't present your members to sin as instruments of or for unrighteousness. That word for instruments means, it can mean instruments or weapons, tools. Don't let your body be a tool for sin. See, the parts of our body can be used as, weapon, as weapons. They can be weaponized by indwelling sin. And we talked about that. The sin that remains in our bodies, in our flesh. Rightly understood. The parts of our body can be used as weapon by indwelling sin to regain their dominance. We can be fooled by sin. I mean, one of Satan's names is deceiver. The world, the flesh, and the death, the, the devil... It's constantly trying to deceive us, to show us. What it wants to say is, no, you're still a slave of sin. 
You're just an old sinner saved by grace. You can't really help it. Don't really worry about it. You're forgiven. You're going to heaven. So it's not really that big a deal how you live, right? You'll someday be glorified and then you'll do all this righteousness stuff. So just relax. Let go. Let God. Enjoy this world system. Live for it for a while. See, I mean, there's just a lot of deception. But Paul is saying, no, the gospel's true. And you as a Christian are in Christ and in union with this death, burial, and resurrection. You've been transformed and changed. You are new creatures in Christ. But you still live in this body that can be still used as an instrument or a weapon for unrighteousness. So be on guard against that. And be watching against that so that you no longer continue to present your body on the altar of rebellion and sin. So when he says, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. Unrighteousness or sin. Think, think that way. What is sin? It's any, any lack of conformity to uh, failure to line up with God's commandments or transgression of. Just You see it, but you step over the line anyway. Right? Sin is, is lawlessness, the Bible would define it. It's not walking in the way that God has commanded us for joy. We'll talk more about that in a minute when we talk about not under law but under grace. But just think, the Ten Commandments are God's gracious, loving provision to command us to, to follow Him and His ways in thought, word, and deed. We know we all fall short. We've talked about that. We might come to Christ and be forgiven. But it governs our thought, words, and deeds. See, before Christ, before Christ, and I mean in your individual life, before you came to Christ, you fight to sin. You justify sin. You rationalize sin. You find your, your pleasure in sin. So before you come to Christ, you fight to sin. I'm talking about unbelievers before we come to Christ. And I remember this very well. Kids, if you came to Christ as a child, you may not remember this part. Right? of being an unbeliever and just living for the weekend and the party and the, you know, all of that stuff. But before we came to Christ, we fought for sin and we fought to sin. Let me give you a glaring example because it's flying all in your face this month. Pride month. Well, pride, number one, is not something to be pursued and embraced. It's one of the seven deadly sins right? But it's, it's people who are fighting to sin. People who are fighting to, to not just continue to use their members for unrighteousness, to, but to be justified for doing so. And to, 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 to gather together and fight against anybody who denies that right. Anybody who would say that that, that is a sin. Birds of a feather. You've heard the, the old saying. Flock together. You saw that at the end of, end of Romans 1. You have some people who are even claimed to be Christians, even claimed to be ministers, promoting such unrighteousness. See, the world hated Jesus, and the, the religious world as well, hated Jesus because He pointed out their sins. We must be willing to do so in our own lives first, right? And then in faithfulness to Christ. So what Paul is saying is stop justifying sin and using your bodies as instruments of its promotion. Stop fighting for sin. You're in a new kingdom now, so put off sin. See, the first step in transformation is put off. And there's another step we'll talk about in a minute. But stop, and you see it in this verse, stop using your instruments, your bodies, your members as instruments for sin because that's not who you are anymore. You died with Jesus to sin. You've been raised to newness of life. Sin no longer reigns over you. Look at Colossians 1, 13 and 14. He, God, has delivered us from the domain or dominion or the rule of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. See, we have a new king now. It's no longer the world, the flesh, and the devil ruling over us. 
but Jesus ruling over us. And Jesus not only rules over us, he rules in us. He indwells us by his spirit and empowers us then to grow and live for him. God has transferred those whom he's converted out of the dominion of darkness over into the kingdom of his beloved son. We're in the kingdom, the kingdom of grace by God's work in us. So listen, because of who you are, because of your new realm, because of your new king, because of the transformation that has taken place within you and the truth of your union with Christ, that you died to sin and were raised to new life in Christ, that that you're you're dead to sin and alive to the reign of God, because of who you are. Now, step one, put off sin. Put it to death. We'll see that later in in chapter 8. John Owen, I quoted this in the last sermon, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. It'll be killing your relationships. It'll be killing you fill in the blank. There's pleasure in sin for a short season, but the end is death. Don't judge whether or not it feels good or looks good or seems good. Look at God's word and say, what does he say about it? But the first thing we're to do is put off. So illustration, think about dirty clothes, really filthy clothes. Kids, sometimes when, I'm not saying adults don't do this, but I remember when I was a kid, it was my joy to wallow in the mud. And, and I mean, we played football in a cove where the water had drained out and it was just mud. And we just, I mean, it was that deep in mud. And we went in and played football. So imagine you come home with those filthy clothes on and your mom says, take that off. Take those clothes off. No child of man is going to walk around looking like that. No child of God should walk around unconcerned about their filthy clothes of sin. But when your parents tell you to take that off, they're not saying walk around naked. That's southern for naked if you don't know that. They're not commanding you to go naked. They're commanding you to take that mess off, probably so that she can clean it or throw it away, and put on, clean up and put on your clothes. So that's our next step, put on. Look, at, look back at verse 13. He's, he says, don't do this, but, strong contrast here, that word behind the English word but. There's a strong contrast all. Stop presenting your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves. Look, he just wrapped it all up there. Present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Here, verse 11 coming into it now. Present yourself to God as this new creature He says you are with the new enablements and empowerments He says you have and the new status you have. Righteous before Him, child of God. Have the Word of God. You have everything necessary for life and godliness, the Word says, and growing in it. So stop presenting your members as weapons for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God knowing who you are, those who've been brought from death to life, And your members, look again, your members as instruments or weapons for righteousness. What's he saying? Fight to live out who you are in Christ. So believe the truth and then fight to live in that truth so that you grow in grace. See, legalism will only change the external dress. But grace changes you from the inside out. Heart change first resulting in life change. Present yourselves to God and your members as instruments for righteousness. See, some of us don't even think that's possible because we bought into the lie. I'm still a sinner. I can't be righteous. Well, no, you can't be perfectly righteous in thought, word, and deed in such a way to make yourself acceptable to God. He's not calling you to do that. Right? But He's calling you to be lining your, the heart and thoughts and life up to His Word and His commands and grow in that. Grow in being a follower of Christ. Grow in being a weapon for righteousness. 
present yourselves as an offering to God and your members as an offering to God for the service of God and for the living in righteousness. Because of our union with Christ, we're dead to sin and alive to God, so live out who you are and intentionally present yourself to God the way He says you are. Make yourself an offering to God. We're going to see it later in chapter 12. I'll just read it now. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present the same word. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What do you mean by that, Paul? Now watch it. Apposition, comma, apposition. He's explaining some more. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What do you mean? That are holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Our daily worship is a growing in holiness out of love for God because He's first loved us. It's a living in and out of His grace so that our lives more and more look like Jesus. Living in grace, therefore, is fighting to put off sin and put on righteousness, but not by legalism. Not by legalism. Let's move on to point two, and this one's shorter. Living under grace means rejecting all legalism and resting fully in Christ. What is legalism? Big picture, legalism is seeking to add anything to the finished work of Christ. So look what Paul says here in in verse 14. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Statement of fact. This is not a command. There's no command here. It's just a statement of fact. And I would put before you, it's a promise. A promise to be embraced. Right? Right? I'm in Christ. I'm new creation. I've died to sin. I'm alive to righteousness. I'm a child of God with the power of the Spirit and the Word of God. Everything necessary for life and godliness. Sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? Look at this. Since you're not under law, but under grace. To be under the law is to be under the obligation to fulfill the law as a condition of salvation Perfectly. That's what it means to be under the law. Under the obligation to fulfill it in thought, word, and deed as a condition of your salvation perfectly. Listen to me. The door, the door that bars the kingdom of God from the unrighteous is His law. It must be kept perfectly or the knob won't turn. We can't get in if we haven't kept the law perfectly. Galatians, like that, see, there's no dabbling in it. God doesn't accept, He doesn't grade on the curve. He doesn't accept imperfection. If you'll be saved by the law, you will, if you'll be saved by works of the law, we've already seen that, you will be saved by your keeping of the law. It will have to be kept in thought, word, and deed from cradle to grave. Galatians 3.10 says, All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written. Why? Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to do them. If you haven't kept everything the law says to do, then before God, in and of yourself, now if you're a believer, this is no longer true of you, cursed. Why? Under condemnation. Why? Because we've sinned against Him. We've broken His law. We've dishonored His name. But to be under the law is to be under the obligation to fulfill the law. But Paul says that you're no longer under the law. Why? Because someone has come and fulfilled all righteousness for you. Remember the sermon in Jesus and His fulfilling of all righteousness for us? Point you back to that. It's not that the law hasn't been kept that I might get in. It's just that I didn't do it. Christ did it for me. So that now I'm under grace. See, sin won't have dominion over you because you're under grace. You could skip forward like that if you need to. You're not under law, under that obligation anymore because Christ has fulfilled that for you. But you are under grace. What does it mean to be under grace? It means to be born again. It means to be justified by grace alone. Justification is an act of God's free grace. Is it, is it running in your mind yet? Had, did you memorize it? 
whereby we are pardoned for all of our sins and accepted as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. To be under grace is to be justified. And you say, I don't get all that talk. Okay, if you're trusting in Christ, God did that in you. He brought you to faith. He turned, you turned from sin and pursuing your own way. And you received the Lord Jesus Christ. And you began, therefore, a life of repentance and faith at that point. But being in Christ, you're under grace. Moving forward, this will help. Galatians 3.13, we just read previous verses. Christ redeemed us from the, from, from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ was cursed because we had broken God's law. He kept it in thought, word, and deed. He deserved only blessing. He was the perfect spotless Lamb of God who never sinned once, but yet He would take our guilt upon Himself so that He would die. He would hang on the tree and suffer the curse that we deserve to suffer. See, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper in a minute, what you're seeing in your hands is Christ taking your curse, your condemnation, what you deserve. The Scripture says Christ died for us, according to the Scriptures, fulfillment of all the Old Testament that pointed forward to a lamb who would come. He died for us in our sins, and He was buried. He really died. And He rose the third day, according to the Scriptures. Proves it all true. So that you can know this morning, if you're trusting in Christ, in Christ alone, you are forgiven. You are cleansed, and you are clothed in His righteousness. You are empowered by His Spirit. Just know who you are so that you can live out what He's called you to live and grow in it. Under grace. Listen to this. Being under grace is to live under the glorious canopy and saving effects of God's amazing grace in Christ. For us, the curse of the law is lifted because the law has been fulfilled for us because it was kept perfectly by Jesus. Our curse was suffered by Jesus. Death and life. Those of you who don't understand the cross, that's what it was all about. Christ, being God and man, came to live for His people, then to die for His people. And on that cross, He was taking our curse. A soul that sins shall die. He was taking our hell upon Himself. And before He left that cross, He said, It is finished. Paid in full. Jesus, by His death, his life, His death, His burial, His resurrection has perfectly saved His people. Remember, we are the righteousness of God in Him. We are dead to sin's reign and alive to God. We are forgiven, cleansed, and clothed all because of grace. God accepts us in the Beloved solely because of His grace that He placed upon us and over us in Christ. Are you trusting in Christ this morning? Are you trusting in Christ alone? That's what it means to be a Christian. Not to be doing your best and hope God will do the rest. Not that your parents were Christians and you'll kind of get in in their coattails. Not, nothing like that. Personal situation. Have you realized your sin and your need of a Savior? And have you turned to Christ in grief and hatred for your sin to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Is your hope fully in Christ and Christ alone? I hope it is this morning. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, Paul told the jailer. John writes, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. By the way, that means in this way He loved the world. In this manner. This is the manner in which He loved the world. God loved the world in this way, that He gave His Son, His only begotten Son, he gave His Son to live. He gave His Son to die, to be raised from the grave. That whosoever believes in Him, trusts in Him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Are you trusting in Him this morning? I hope you say yes. But you can see it in our verse before us now, and I'm going to give you some other verses to see that just because you've come to faith in Christ, grace is not finished with you yet. Remember, sanctification, our definition, is a work of God's Free grace whereby you go on. Be memorizing that one too. But grace, 
purifies those who have it. Grace sanctifies the ones, those it justifies. Grace, what do you mean, preacher? Grace produces love for Jesus in your heart. Jesus said, if you love me, you won't worry too much about sin. Is that what he said? He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Out of love for me, because of what I've done for you, basically, is what he's saying. But look at this. I'm telling you, grace is not through with you. You have a responsibility to do not go on presenting your members to unrighteousness, but present yourselves as sacrifices and your members as instruments for righteousness. This is what it means to live under grace. Just understanding our acceptance is Christ and now our responsibility is to grow in living for Him. Look at what Titus 2, 11 to 14 says. <clears throat> for the grace of God has appeared, where? In Jesus. Bringing salvation for all people. And a lot of us would just stop right there. A lot of churches you've gone to, just stop right there. Not all. But look what else grace does in verse 12. Grace brought us salvation, but it also trains us. Grace trains us, what? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to no longer present our bodies as instruments of unrighteousness, but to live self-control, upright, and godly lives in this present age. What, in, what helps that and empowers that and produces that love? Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of, our, of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ who gave Himself for us. Watch the two things Christ gave Himself for us to accomplish. Who gave Himself for us, number one, to redeem us from all lawlessness. Did that on the cross, right? And two... Look, 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 there's more for, more for grace to do, more purpose for the cross, more purpose for His sacrifice. Two, to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. To redeem us and to transform us. Grace brings us to Christ and so that we trust in Christ and that we are redeemed and forgiven and cleansed and clothed and empowered. And then it trains us to live for Christ. You don't get one without the other. You don't get a half Jesus and you don't get a half salvation. And you can't just have justification and a cabin in heaven. It's a full salvation that God worked. Grace trains us for godliness. Grace trains us to present our members as instruments of righteousness because we're under grace for our acceptance with God. Look, Peter preached and taught the same thing in, in 1 Peter 1, 13 to 15. He says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Get ready for action. For the fight. For the work. For the presenting of our members as instruments of righteousness. Prepare your minds for action and being sober-minded. What does that mean? Thinking rightly. What is a mind that thinks, a Christian mind that is thinking rightly, what does that look like? Thankfully, he tells us. And you see these same two phases in here. You see justification and sanctification. You see coming to faith in Christ and growing in grace. All here. But it's said in the proper context. Number one. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So your hope for acceptance by God, your hope for, for justification, your hope for salvation, your hope that He will accept you and, and receive you into heaven and into the new heavens, new earth. Your hope is to only and always be fully in the Lord Jesus Christ, not in what you do, Right? So the first part of a, of a healthy mind, a healthy Christian mind, is setting our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation or the return of Christ, right? When the work is completed. He's still doing... We, we have, in case you didn't know, we're not glorified yet. We don't have our glorified bodies. And then look at verse 14. And as obedient children, not... Stop, stop. Not as scared to death slaves who are afraid they won't be accepted by God so they're going to work to be accepted by God. No. As obedient children. 
those who've been accepted and are now children of God, who live in and under His grace, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as He who's called you to be holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. God calls us to a gospel holiness, a grace-filled holiness. What does holiness look like in the life of the believer? I'll always be perfect for Jesus and I'll never sin. No. No. We progressively die unto sin, its practice, and live unto righteousness, right? So being holy in Christ means that I hate my sin and grieve over it and I confess it to Him. I run to His throne of grace quickly when I sin and confess it and receive His forgiveness and power to walk in newness of life afresh and anew. And then that I make, as Peter would say, make every effort to grow in grace then, out of that grace. Set your hope fully on the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then as God's wonderfully saved children, purpose to grow in living for Him. Living for God for the Christian is called holiness. And we're told to pursue holiness without which none will see the Lord. Perfect holiness in our position in Christ so that we are living out what we are in Christ in our practice and our growing practice of a holy life. See, to those of you who think holiness is a boogie word or a bad word or an old word, it's not. It's just a Bible word. It's what God calls us to. You want to know what perfect holiness looks like living on this earth? Look at the life of Jesus. Not in you walking around doing miracles and having the word of God come out of your mouth. But it is my food to do the Father's will, he said. He kept the law and thought word and deed for us. True grace produces a life of growing, joyful repentance and resting in Christ. Loving Jesus equals pursuing holiness because we have a new life and a new heart and the Spirit and the Word of God, because He has saved us. If we love Him, we'll grow in keeping His commandments. That's kind of a good test, isn't it? What does my life look like? It'll show me how much I love Jesus, won't it? How faithfully am I following Him? Does my failure grieve me and I run to, for forgiveness, and do I pursue more faithful following of Jesus? And it's not just talking about coming to church on Sunday and reading your Bible and praying and talking. To, and those are good things, right? But in living for Him and not presenting my body as an instrument or a weapon for unrighteousness, not aiming the weapons He's given me at His throne by continuing to rebel against Him. You have a new life in Christ. You're living under His grace. You have a new heart and a new spirit. You're a new creation with the Word of God. Yes, you still live in mortal bodies and therefore there's growth and challenge and struggle. But grow in living out who you are because you are under grace and accepted in the beloved. So two quick points of application. Live under grace by fighting for righteousness. Your members are therefore to be weapons for righteousness. No longer in the war for sin, but now you're in the war against sin. You're, 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 you're fighting with and for your new king, not against him. Yourself and your body are presented and dedicated to him. Have you ever done that? And is that your regular practice? God, I present myself to you, thankful for your grace, as an instrument for your glory. Empower me and use me. Something like that. We need to do, be doing that every day. We need to be reviewing the gospel and knowing who we are in Christ and dedicating ourselves afresh and anew to following Christ, to living for God, to not being flippant about sin, to not presenting our members any longer as instruments for unrighteousness. It's not okay, for Christian, for you to continue to glare at pornography on that screen. not okay. You're, you're, you're aiming your guns at the throne of grace when you do that. It's not something you're caught in and you can't get out of. It's something you're rationalizing maybe and justifying and 
Maybe just some sense of joying. Right? Parents, same thing for you. Children, youth, every, all of us. There's no justification for us continuing to present our members as instruments of unrighteousness. But we have everything we need to do what Paul is calling us to do in believing the gospel that in Christ we're dead to sin and alive to God. Sin no longer reigns over us to present ourselves and our members as instruments for righteousness. I just mentioned porn because it's so rampant these days and so easy to access. Your life will tell you whether or not you're serious about following Jesus. I mean, this will help. But this is not the cure. Getting rid of this for a while might help or getting rid of computer privileges or whatever. But just the heart is the problem that uses the tools to dishonor God. And I promise you, if you will turn from it, whatever the sin is, including that, and turn to His throne of grace, He will empower you to do what this verse is calling you to do by reminding you who you are and then calling you to, to present yourself as an instrument for righteousness. And that all flows from being accepted in Christ. So point number two, living under grace. Live under grace by resting fully in Jesus. See, true holiness doesn't flow from legalism. Legalism will wash the outside of the cup, but it can do nothing about the inside of the cup, the heart. True holiness flows from love of Jesus. And love of Jesus flows from the gospel and the fact that he lived for us and died for us and was raised for us. That's why I'm telling us, we wake up hardwired legalists in the morning, we need the gospel to reset us so that we love Christ and grow in that and seek to walk in his grace during that day. True holiness will only flow from love of Christ and a desire to honor him and live for him because he has honored you and lived for you and died for you and been raised for you and is reigning for you and is coming again for you someday. You are accepted in the beloved if you are accepted by grace and grace alone and that should transform you. And now your, your members will be weapons for righteousness if you really get the gospel. You'll never aim those weapons at the throne of grace and shoot at your gracious glorious king but you'll aim them at the kingdom of darkness and oppose it and dedicate your members to righteousness. All because of His grace. Amazing grace. And can it be that we've already sung. All because we're forgiven of our sin and clothed in His righteousness. So let's change our opening quote to this. I fight against sin because I'm not under law, but under grace. I fight against sin because I'm not under law, but under grace. To live as Christ. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Lord, help us. Help us not to, if we don't love you, help us not to seek to love you by our own performance. Help us to look to you, to look to your grace, to look to your gospel. The fact that you lived for us and died for us and was raised for us. You took our curse. That should produce love in our hearts if the Spirit's at work. And love for you, Lord Jesus, will result in a growing living for you. If we have no concern to live for you, we don't know you. Help us just to be real. Help us to be real. Work in us a love of you. Work in us a love of your word. Work in us a dependence upon the Holy Spirit so that we are intentional about growing in grace, about living for Jesus. Change us and help us, we pray. We know you will. In Jesus' holy name, amen. We're going to transition to the Lord's Supper now. Um, I know there's an announcement about that in your bulletin, a little description there. I encourage you to read that. But um, what we're going to do is we're going to sing a couple of songs while the elements are passed out. And then you hold on to those elements until the end after the songs and we'll partake together. So I have a warning and an invitation, <laughs> right? Read 1 Corinthians 11. They were people who were abusing the supper, who were not recognizing the body. They were selfish and self-centered in their own partaking of the supper. And Paul says, some of you are sick and some of you have died because you abused the supper. You didn't recognize the body.
basically, probably were not believers truly. They were in the fellowship of the church, but not, not true believers. Maybe some were. So my invitation to you this morning is, is, is take it seriously. If you're not a Christian and you know you're not a Christian, just be authentic to that. Because this is a meal for Christians. And by taking the meal, you're saying you're trusting in Jesus. So just be authentic. If you're not trusting in Christ, if you don't want Christ as your Savior, if you're not believing in Him, let it pass. If you're, if you're running from uh, sin in some form or you're under discipline from another church and running from that, don't take the supper. Come talk to us. Right? We don't want you to be eating and drinking judgment to yourself. Parents, if you're, and you've seen it happen recently, if your kids have made a profession in faith and been baptized, we invite you to allow them to partake. If your kids are not believers, this needs to be a gospel opportunity. Maybe they cry. It's okay. But you can explain to them why we shouldn't be partaking the supper if we don't know and trust Jesus. But if you're a believer, if you're of a like-minded faith, if you um, are trusting in Christ and Christ alone this morning, we would invite you to partake with us. This is, um, it's a serious but a blessed matter that we commune with Christ. See, this is what's happening when we're taking communion. We're not just eating bread and drinking juice or wine, and I'll explain that in a minute. But we're actually fellowshipping with and communing with Christ. We're looking through these elements. They're instruments. They're gospel instruments that we look through to the Christ who died for us, has been raised for us, who's reigning for us, who's actually present with us, sanctifying us and fortifying our faith as we feed upon Him by faith. That might sound strange. But it's a spiritual feeding. It's a heart feeding that afresh and anew embraces his broken body, the fact that He took my curse, His shed blood, His, His fat sacrifice washes away my sin. So we're communing with Christ. So focus on Him and commune with Him through these elements that we will pass out. So like I said, with the proper cautions, uh, we invite you to partake with us and to feed on Christ spiritually in your heart as we take these elements together. But we're going to sing a couple of songs. You remain seated. It just makes it easier for them to pass out the elements. And then at the end of that, we will, we will partake together. But look again to this, uh, these two songs and uh, just as a, uh, a worship of the Lord and a preparation for communion or Lord's Supper. But let's, oh yeah. Explanation. Outer ring is wine, right Mike? Correct. All right. The darker the outer ring is wine. The inner ring is juice. I mean, bread is gluten free, so no worries there. So, you know, parents, watch your kids. Uh, it's up to you. The church celebrated communion with real wine for almost 1,900 years until somebody got the bright idea to pasteurize grape juice and ruin it. Uh, no. No. No, no, no. I'm teasing with you. If wine is a stumbling block for you, we have juice. And, of course, for your kids, and, of course, gluten won't be a stumbling block. But, um, but wine on the outside, juice in the middle. All right. Now, remain seated. We'll sing together.
in that hymn, God's ways don't always make sense to us, do they? But our trials must work for us, Heidelberg Confession, because we're in Christ. Life will often be confusing. I mean, we're celebrating the death of Christ, and, and we're celebrating it, right? But those original disciples were not celebrating it at first. The Messiah, the King, the one who would come and rout the enemies and set up the kingdom was not supposed to be on that cross because they were looking for the conquering king. Life did not make sense. They were huddled in a room and, and scared and trembling. They were not world conquerors. But God, when Christ stepped into that room, when He showed Himself to them as truly raised from the dead, oh, it changed everything. For them and for us. And now we come to that same event and we celebrate it. 
We celebrate His death for us. His life, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. But what we have before us is what I said earlier, a representation of Christ taking our curse for us. And why do we do this? Well, it's because He commanded us to. He simplified and transformed that Passover meal and took two elements from it to represent Himself and the redemption that He would accomplish for His people. Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three and following, says this. Where did he get his practice? He got it straight from the Lord. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you, or broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He took a body. He humbled himself by addition. He took a true human nature upon himself that he might live in fulfillment of all righteousness as we've seen. But he always knew it would culminate. That earthly life would culminate on that cross. Because He was the Lamb of God. He was the one who came to die for the sins of His people. And if we're trusting in Christ, that death was just as much for us as it was for the early disciples. So we come to this supper with confidence and we look through this bread to Christ's broken body. And we realize it was broken for us. It was crushed for us that He paid the penalty. He took our curse. So believer, as you eat this bread, look to your Savior and remember His death and believe that He was crushed for you. Eat and remember Christ. But he also took the cup after supper and showed its intended and fulfilled purpose. It was to picture that he was the fulfillment of all of those bloody Old Testament sacrifices. Blood was shed so that sin might be forgiven. We know that the blood of bulls and goats only covered that sin and pointed to the one who would come, the God-man who would die and pay the penalty for our sins. His blood representing His death. Blood poured out means life poured out. Christian, as you look and drink this cup, look to Christ and believe that His blood, His death, His sacrifice has washed away all of your sins. Drink and remember Jesus. Lord, we thank You for this bread. We thank You for this cup. Not that there's any power in it, but that they are simply gospel instruments. They remain bread and wine or juice, but they are used for a holy purpose by your Spirit. They portray to us the gospel in a, a visible, sensible, tasteable way, a pleasing way. They point us to you, Lord Jesus. You who lived for us and therefore you who died for us giving your body to be broken and crushed, enduring the curse. You poured out your lifeblood for us, dying for us, that our sins might be washed away. And we rejoice this morning that because of your life, death, burial, and resurrection, our sins have been taken away. You took them and paid the penalty. They are as far removed from us as the east is from the west. They are in the heart of the sea. We are forgiven for all of our sins. Those who by your grace are trusting in you. We've been cleansed from our guilt. Clothed in your righteousness. Adopted into your family. Your children empowered by your spirit with your word. Who have therefore everything necessary for life and godliness. Life and holiness. May we reverence you and your sacrifice for us. 
May we love you because you first loved us. May we live for you because you are worthy and because it is our good. Work in us what is pleasing in your sight and work through us to bring this glorious good news to those who don't know you. It is in Jesus' holy and precious name that we pray. Amen.